When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Thanks for listening to The Family Brain. I'm Megan Gibson, and today I'll be talking with Rich Carlgard. Rich is a speaker and an author and is the publisher of Forbes magazine, which I'm not going to lie, made me a little bit nervous. And I had to reassure myself that we were not going to be talking about finance. So I should be okay. Um, We are going to be talking about his book called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. And I love this book and the topic. I heard him on a couple of podcasts and then listened to his audio book. And I just think it's an important message, especially when we're talking about teenagers and parenting teenagers. And the stress and anxiety and depression that can come from putting lots of pressure on these early achievements when that isn't necessary for a happy and fruitful life. So I hope you enjoy listening to Rich. I really love talking to him and I love the message that he shares. Thanks for listening. Hi, Rich. Thank you so much for joining us on The Family Brain today. Happy to be with you, Megan. I have been enjoying your different interviews on different uh, podcasts, and I also enjoyed your audio book. I know you have written a few books, but the one that I am familiar with is the Late Bloomers book. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of got to realize that this was something that matters to you so much? I guess that's what's really intriguing to me. You have a very interesting background and you're the publisher of Forbes magazine, but it seems like you're really passionate about this topic of late bloomers. And I wanted to hear a little bit about how you got to that passion. I am passionate about the topic of late blooming. And it was quite a departure for me to write this book. Normally in my Forbes columns and and in the books that I write, I write about the intersection of technology and, and corporate organization and finance and all of those topics. Why I was motivated to write Late Bloomers? Well, I shared my own story of late blooming in the book. And it's kind of a goofy story. At age 25, I hadn't bloomed at all uh, one day or one evening when I was a security guard, I I could hold no job, by the way, greater than that of security guard, dishwasher, temporary typist, things like that. Nothing wrong with those kinds of jobs, but I had a Stanford degree. And so three years later, I was still struggling to get a footing in the adult world. And one night as a security guard at a trucking firm in San Jose, I was walking the perimeter of the trucking yard, making my rounds, and I heard a dog barking. And I swung my flashlight around, and I saw across a chain-link fence in another trucking yard was a very angry-looking Rottweiler. And it occurred to me that at age 25, my professional colleague was a dog. And that may sound funny. It is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I felt pretty awful about it, that I hadn't made any traction at all. Well, I always wondered, Megan, whether that would be a story worth sharing with with people, all the goofiness of my early bumbling. 
And, um, and so I've been thinking about this for 20 or 30 years, mm -hmm. but what really catalyzed me to get off my hind end and write this book on late bloomers was seeing the turmoil that, that educated families were going through in trying to decide how to raise their children. Should they buy into this idea that the, that all children should should be try to maximize their standardized test scores with the help of tutors and studying? Should all children get on an advanced placement track with the idea of getting a 4.3 grade average because God forbid a 4.0 isn't enough these days? All with the idea of getting into the most expensive elite university they could, which is another risk factor for the whole family trying to support a $250,000 undergraduate degree, and whether it was worth it. And what I was seeing where I live, I don't live in New York where Forbes is based. I live in Silicon Valley. In fact, I live about five miles from Stanford University, and our neighboring town, Palo Alto, was dealing with this issue in a very um, emotional way, that in the 2014-2015 school year, there were six student suicides, three at one high school, two at another, and one at a private girls' school. And um, the kids that were killing themselves were not kids who'd been clinically diagnosed with depression, or they, and they were not kids who had, were toying around with dangerous drugs. They were kids who felt horrible about themselves because they were only B-plus students. And I thought, my goodness, what is going on here? There was a writer named Hannah Rosen of the Atlantic Monthly who did a cover story on that awful tragedy called The Silicon Valley Suicides. Hmm. Came out in, the, in, I think, in August 2015. She had to close her story, finish up her reporting, write the story, and, and, and submit it to editing by March of the 2015 school year. And by March... There, were, had, there had been, in addition to the six suicides, yeah. more than 40 hospitalizations for suicide ideation. So the suicides were the tip of the iceberg. And I thought, now is the time. Something has to be said about this. Right. So, something has to be said in protest about this. And then something has to be said about whether this is even a smart way to raise children. I agree. No, I think that's amazing. And I, I think that's one of the things I love so much about your story is that you do have access to people who have been quote unquote successful, right? Like, so you have you and you have that firsthand knowledge that that doesn't always mean you feel healthy or happy or joyful in your life. And I think sometimes people can say, well, you went to Harvard or you have this much money. This is the type of job you have. So you must be fine. And I think it almost takes an insider to say, hold on, what are we doing here? This doesn't, this isn't, these pieces aren't computing, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense from a couple of standpoints. Number one, we all mature at different rates. I was one of those kids who was simply late to mature. I'm late, I matured late physically. I remember in eighth grade, I hadn't hit puberty yet. I was 5'2 and 80 pounds. And my dad was the, the high school athletic director in the city that I grew up in, the uh, public school high school athletic director in Bismarck, North Dakota, the state capital of North Dakota. And he was a great athlete in high school. And I remember feeling ashamed of myself that I was the worst person on the team on my junior high football team in eighth grade. And I utterly lacked the context of this. I mean, I should have, if I would have stood outside myself, I could have easily seen that somebody who's 5'2 and 80 pounds and hasn't hit puberty playing football against kids that weighed 120 or 140 pounds that had hit puberty was at a real disadvantage. But all I felt is that I was letting down my dad and I felt terrible about that. So people mature at different rates. They mature emotionally, mentally, physically at different rates. And many of us late bloomers are simply slower to mature. And then the other thing is that if you look at this mania about doing well on standardized tests and getting the highest possible grades, well, that rewards people with the skills 
to be able to do that. Right. There are certain people who are gifted. I would call them the algorithmically gifted who do very well on standardized tests and they adapt to school. But you think about the range of human talents and passions and the ability to do well on tests and to do well in an AP class setting is just one track among many, many, many tracks to excellence. Right. So all the kids that don't fit that track of scoring well on standardized tests and getting straight A's in advanced placement courses fall outside what is supposed to be the one and only acceptable track in high school these days. So it leaves out all the mechanically gifted, artistically gifted, uh, poetically gifted people out there. There are so many, there's such a wide range of human gifts that get completely discounted in, uh, in today's environment. I agree. I, that's one of the things I try to reassure friends and who are parenting and feeling like their kids are going to fail life because they're not good in school. And I personally, I'm kind of the opposite example. I was always really good in school and I loved school and I worked hard in school. Um, and I got to, to outside of school life and it did not fit for me, but that's most of life is outside of school life. And so it was tricky to try to put those pieces together. And I just find that a lot of the parenting that goes on is just very fear-based that somehow their child is going to fail at life if they aren't good at science or that they don't, they're not good at turning in the papers they're supposed to turn in. What do you say to parents like that are, that are feeling that way and that are sort of coming from that place of fear? Well, I think there was a, an influential book that came out a few years ago that encouraged parents to, to apply more pressure on their kids to do well in school. And it, it was the um, the Tiger Mom book oh, yeah. um, by Amy Chua, and it was a, it was a great book. I mean, I take nothing away from that book, and I take nothing away from the Tiger Mom philosophy. I would only say to parents, if you've tried that and it's not working, and by the way, with if you have multiple children, it may work for for one or two of your children and not work for for the other children. But if it's working, God bless you. If it's not working, the answer, though, is not to double down. Think about, let's take it out of the realm of school. Think about two people aspiring to run the Boston Marathon. You've got to make a qualifying time. Let's say it's three hours and 30 minutes. And you've decided to dedicate yourself to qualifying for the Boston Marathon. And so you read up on uh, read up on all the training and you and you see that you have to run minimally 40 or 50 miles a week with a long weekend run thrown in there to have a chance of making that qualifying time. Now you could take two people who are similarly gifted, uh, both doing that 50 mile a week regimen and one may thrive running 50 miles a week and one might get injured very predictably at 40 miles a week. And so do you say to the person who's, who starts getting injured or starts getting chronic illnesses at 40 miles a week because they're exhausted, do you tell them just push through? Well, if you're getting injured, if you're, you can't run through a stress fracture. All the determination in the world isn't going to get you through a stress fracture or any number of uh, overuse injuries that you might get running all of those miles. So you have to find alternative ways of getting your training, whether it's swimming, bicycling, um, elliptical trainers, whatever it is, to be able to, to get to the amount of training you're going to need in addition to running, let's say, 30 miles a week, so that you can meet the qualifying time. I feel the same thing applies to kids in school. Some will break down under the regime of putting uh, a lot of pressure on these kids. They simply will have emotional problems, chronic stress, um, one of the one of the boys who committed suicide at, at Gunn High School in Palo Alto had been posting on social media that he was tired of getting up at 3.30 in the morning to keep up with his advanced placement courses. So to use my running analogy, that was the kid that was breaking down at 30, 40 miles a week, but was told that he had to push through and run 50, 60 miles a week. So you know, the tiger mom philosophy can work where it works, but it's not going to work for everybody. In fact, I, I would, would guess that it doesn't work for the majority, that it probably works for a very small minority of kids. And, um, and for, for those 
for whom it doesn't work, um, alternative means of, of having a fulfilling, forward propelling junior high and high school and college career must be sought out. In, in your research, I was just thinking about this as you were talking, in your research, did you find any differences um, in the approach that uh, immigrant parents take and, and the additional pressures put on children within that system, just that have given up a whole life in another country and have come here? And I don't know, I'm just thinking that I think that there's, I, I've, I remember I was watching a comedy special and the comedian was talking about the difference between immigrant parents and, and uh, parents from the United, that were born in the United States and um, just the additional pressures put on them. You know, I didn't, Megan, because I don't, I haven't walked that walk. Right. And I felt that I didn't have the credibility of, of feeling that from the inside. Certainly if you read American literature uh, throughout the, the ages, you will find that common story of the immigrant family where the kids felt enormous pressure to conform and to be the hero that saves the whole family. And I, I remember I, I got to participate on a panel at um, the Chinese University in Hong Kong. And the panel was, uh, you had all these high achieving kids, many of them from mainland China but others from, from Hong Kong and, and neighboring countries like Singapore. And I felt that I was seeing something that exists within the United States, but exists to even a greater degree in, in Asia and among in, immigrant families everywhere. And I'll never forget one boy said that his parents were determined that he should be a medical doctor. And he was really his fires of passion were lit up in a different area. His passions were about being an entrepreneur and going on and getting an MBA and learning finance and all of those sorts of things so that he could be a more effective entrepreneur. And he was doing very well in those classes and he was doing it on the sly. He was afraid to tell his parents that he didn't want to be a medical doctor. And so I'm aware of those pressures, but you know, I decided, and I think correctly so, since I hadn't experienced those directly, I would not be the, the proper person to delve into that, that story. Right. Now, I'm just thinking, I, I guess I just want to put out there that sometimes it's just, it's, it's complicated. Within families, it can be very complicated what other things people are bringing to the table. And um, I was just having a conversation with a friend who gets worried that her child is not performing in school. And, but then she's telling me, I was asking her, oh, do you decorate your house for Christmas? You know, because we're new to the Austin area and I didn't know what resources you get to, basically, I'm going to pay somebody to put these up. And she's like, my son does it. He loves it. He goes all out decorating the entire house. And so this is a kid who maybe doesn't want to sit at school, but is really creative and I don't know. I think we need to do more to sort of hold on to those moments because it's so easy to hold on to the, oh, he didn't turn in his homework paper. You know what I mean? And, and, and those things are the things that rise to the surface when I think we could all do better at noticing those things that they are doing really well that maybe don't fit the school mode or the mole that we're trying to create. I think you're so right about that. It's so life affirming when families do that. And I'll tell you the story of the opposite. One of my college roommates followed a career path that, that is more like yours, that he majored in psychology, and then he, then he went to Fuller Theological Seminary in, in uh, Pasadena, and he pursued a dual track of, he got his master's in divinity, but his PhD in clinical psychology. And he's been a practicing clinical psychologist in, in Pasadena ever since with an emphasis on families. And as you know, what often brings people in to see a family practice clinical psychologist is a teenager that is not thriving. Uh, they could be in total rebellion, they could be flirting with drugs, or they simply aren't, they aren't doing well. And my friend's name is Jeff, the psychologist's name is Jeff, and Jeff told me the story that is all too typical where a family comes in to see him, the, uh, their son, and it's usually a, a boy, 
that is bringing the family in, at least in his experience. And the family is saying, you know, we don't know what's happened to our son. Uh, he was a good student up until about eighth grade. Now he doesn't care anymore. He's hanging out with new kids that we don't really recognize. We're very worried about him. His grades are in the toilet. What should we do? And so Jeff talked to the boy. And in his professional capacity, Jeff did what the family should have done. To your point, they listened to the boy's story. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the boy was not interested in school. He was interested in cars, repairing cars, tuning cars. Today, of course, tuning a car means doing it with software as much as turning a wrench. And that these new kids that he was hanging out with weren't dangerous kids. They weren't dope smoking kids. They were kids who similarly shared a passion for cars. And the parents were utterly unaware of this. And the kid felt, um, you know, there was some zeitgeist in the family that, that told the, that, you know, the kid got the idea that it, this is forbidden fruit, that he couldn't talk about this. So my friend Jeff gently shared this with the father that, you know, maybe your kid isn't college bound right away. You know, you can always go to college later, but maybe he should get a job at a Lexus service center or something like that and, uh, and follow his passion, see where it leads. Maybe um, he'll, uh, th that'll satisfy his curiosity and age 22, he can go to, you know, he's, he'll be ready to go to college, whatever it is. But my recommendation is don't, don't keep pushing on a college trajectory um, because he probably won't be ready for it and he won't want it at age 18. And the father couldn't bear to hear this. Mm -hmm. And the father told my friend Jeff, the father slammed the table and said, I went to USC, the University of Southern California, and my kid is going to USC too. That's what we do in this family. Mm -hmm. Now, how is that serving the kid? Right. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a family problem. Right. I mean, this is a father problem. This is a father-son problem. This is toxic. Yes. And yet it exists everywhere. Yeah. Well, and that's what gave me this idea for the family brain is just in my work with families, it was always like what you're saying. They bring in the kid. We got this kid problem. You know, and it, oftentimes it's, it's a family problem. It's a way of looking at the world problem you know, that, that this is what success is. And if it's not this, then you might as well just like tap out. Um, I loved, do you know Denise Pope? Oh, yes. I love to, I talked to her. The woods up here in uh, the San Francisco Bay area. Yes. I, she, I feel like when I was talking to her, I had this little light bulb moment of my own where it's just this whole challenge success concept that we just really have to keep pushing back on how we're defining success. You know, is it getting into an Ivy League school? Okay, and then what? You know, and it's just like, and you wonder why we're all exhausted. You know, I mean, if it's if there's constantly this push for things that aren't fitting. Um, anyway, I just love well, you know, up. I'm glad you used the word exhausted. One of the most important interviews I did for late bloomers was to talk to Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is teaches psychology at Stanford. And if, if your listeners recognize her name, it's probably because they've read her best-selling book, Mindset, uh, that she wrote in, in 2006. And Mindset is all about how to cultivate a growth mindset versus falling into the trap of having a fixed mindset. And it's often, often people who, who are successful early and develop this notion that that the for, their formula for success will always serve them well, that develop a fixed mindset that later proves to be not so useful. And she, she told me the story. I interviewed her in, in the fall of 2016. And I said, Carol, you know, congratulations on um, the 10-year anniversary of Mindset. Wow, 2 million copies sold. Sachin Adela, the CEO of Microsoft, has all his employees read it. It's a, it's a big hit. And she said that it was surprising that it was such a big hit with business people. And she said the message still isn't getting through, though, to, to parents and teachers. And I said, well, explain. And she leaned forward and said in 
in, in an almost conspiratorial voice, she said, the kids I see at Stanford today in my freshman psychology class are, are exhausted and brittle and they don't want to try new things. Mm -hmm. They've been on this track where it, it was so focused on 800 SAT scores and 4.3 grade averages and advanced placement courses that they don't, they, they feel like anything outside of that is a risk that could wreck their, rep, wreck their reputation. And what an awful thing, right. you know, really. I mean, these kids were the very definition of kids who had a fixed mindset. And, and, and she developed a bunch of techniques that are, that are worth sharing about how to get kids out of this fixed mindset. There was a, one of the boys who um, um, had fit this profile of being exhausted and brittle um, was also somebody who's very shy, almost to the point of being clinically shy. And Carol's technique is to get people to pledge to try something um, in an area where they're no good at, where they, they don't think they're any good at, so that if they fail, it's okay. Mm. And so she persuaded this very shy freshman young man to, uh, well, it was his idea, but she encouraged him to run for president of his freshman dorm, a shy kid. And he did. And he won. And he comes back every year and talks to the students about how it changed his life. His whole, you know, this whole idea of being shy wasn't as fixed in his personality as he assumed it was. Right. And, and he could change and he could grow. And his, you know, things began to get better for him after that. And he began to develop a sense of confidence and independence, which is what you want. Right. You uh, want in, in teens and young adults. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. It's reminding me of, did you ever watch um, Brene Brown's special on, I don't remember what it was called, but it was basically, she was talking about how she speaks to all of these businesses about um, courage and shame and vulnerability and how that is critical to innovation in, in business. And, um, and without fail, people will raise their hands and be like, but we don't want to make mistakes. Like we, we're not here for that, you know? And so it's just this, push and pull between like mistakes are necessary for innovation, for change, for growth. And yet we don't always want to make those mistakes. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. it's really horrible. This idea that we've inflicted upon the young fortune magazine, not my own magazine Forbes, but fortune had uh, does an annual issue called the best places to work. And in the 2017 issue, they had a bunch of CEOs of really high-performing companies, companies like Genentech and Intuit, the software company, and they asked the CEOs, what do you most value in your employees? And the number one word that came up was curiosity, because without curiosity, there's no, uh, th th that is the lodestone of growth. But of course, if you're curious, you're going into uh, unventured territory and, and things are unfamiliar and, and you for sure are going to make mistakes. But that's how growth happens. So you, you, you have to develop curiosity. And I think we've driven the curiosity out of a lot of these high-performing kids. In fact, what we've done uh, is ask them to trade their curiosity for this determined focus. Mm -hmm. and, and we've created these lopsidedly focused kids with no curiosity. Right. It's just almost like compliance. Just compliance. Yeah, it's compliant. Right. Little, little automatons. High-performing automatons. But but automatons. What do you think got us to this point? Like what in, in terms of the the history of education and, and how we thought about success, what do you think got us to this point where it's just so miserable? <laughs> I'm thinking of a different word, but just so intense. What do you think has gotten us to this intensity point? And it seems like there's a lot of pushback against that now. At least there's an awareness that maybe this intensity isn't healthy. But what do you think got us here? Yeah, I think two things. One was a uh, you know series of studies that have that have um, shown the same thing over the last thirty years or so that kids with a college degree have a much better salary potential than kids without a without a college degree. So that's undeniable. That's that's been in the works. The split between those with college degrees versus those without has been 
has been there. And furthermore, those with masters and PhDs tend to do better than those simply with a four-year undergraduate degree. Now, we may be at the high watermark of, uh, of the difference between the degreed and the undegreed, but, but that trend had been building. And then you look at the economy and you look at over the last 20 years, the two sure things in the economy where, where one can pursue um, excellence and, and, and get a high salary or be in a high bonus structure have been in two areas. They've been in software and they've been in high finance. So by software, I mean Silicon Valley kind of software, the Googles, the Facebooks, the, um, you know, companies like that, that have created this extraordinary wealth, not just for the founders at, at impossibly young ages. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook when he was still at undergrad at Harvard. Sergey Brin and Larry Page started Google while they were grad students at Stanford. Um, Bill Gates, to go back a generation, dropped out of Harvard to start Microsoft. And so you've seen all of these young prodigies doing amazing things in software. And on Wall Street and in venture capital and in hedge funds, you can, you can make a lot of money early and have, have a really lucrative career too. Well, now step back and look at Silicon Valley kind of software and look at high finance as practiced mostly in and around New York. And what do you see? You see an almost closed club of, of, of entrepreneurs and people who back these entrepreneurs who went to one of maybe 10 universities, Stanford, Harvard, MIT, Caltech, uh, University of California at Berkeley, and, and not that many others. And so I think that's this idea that is trickled down that not only do you need a college degree and perhaps advanced degrees to do well in this knowledge driven economy, but you have to go to the right schools to get noticed in the most lucrative parts of the economy. Uh, try being the kid from, you know, North Dakota State walking into Silicon Valley with a good idea. Nobody knows you. Mm -hmm. You look at your, you know, where you went to school, they sh shrug their shoulders. And North Dakota State's a good school. Uh, there, are, there are dozens and dozens of really fine universities out there that get discounted in this mania. Right. Um, to um, to try to get into the you know one of maybe ten schools because New York and Silicon Valley think that those are the only schools that are worth going to. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It's uh, it's interesting just knowing people who have gone to some of these schools and and once they get there, it's just that constant. Well, now what? Now what? Now what? And it's and I mean that's over the whole course of your life. So if you're parenting. And you're training your child to think, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? It's, it's just, I don't know. I mean, from my point of view, it's not a very fun way to live. You know, I mean, it, it just always, and I'm not saying don't challenge yourself, but, but if you're feeling like you always have to be, you know, doing the next thing to be competitive, um, it, it's something to consider, you know, what toll it's taking. And if yes. it's a toll you want to, if it's a, what's, you know, a sacrifice you want to make. And as a parent, is it fair that you make that choice for your child? If you're making that choice for yourself, that's one thing, but to make it for another person is another, is another ball of wax. Yeah. And I think I don't particularly fault parents, even that, even that father that said, you know, was determined that his kid was going to go to USC. They're trying to do the right thing. Right. And I think society is pouring out all kinds of messages that they are doing the right thing. Whereas your idea that has is much better grounded and much has much better evidence behind it over the you know the course of human existence that we listen to our kids and we be supportive and we try to guide them into areas where they're going to grow over the course of their lives because they they're truly passionate is you know it, it that has to overcome a lot of cultural headwinds right now which is unfortunate Yes. And I think that's what I, I guess I'm trying to it just push, push back, question it. Like, is this actually what we want to be doing? And one of the things I loved, I heard you in another podcast with Jen Hatmaker talking about how you're sort of taking away the gift that God has placed within this child if you are deciding 
You know what I mean? Like if you're deciding, okay, you're going to be this and you're going to do this, you're not really letting the universe and God have a chance to unfold. I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth. Maybe no, you well, no you're not. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I wrote Late Bloomers. I decided early that I would write Late Bloomers as a secular book because I wanted it to be available to anybody who is struggling with these decisions about how to raise their children, whether to apply more pressure or whether to uh, be encouraging of alternative paths. But my point of view very much springs from this basic notion that there is a creator and that we are, if we were born in God's image, think about that, unpack that statement because it's more powerful than it, that it may appear at first glance. If we're created in God's image, all of us, then we were created by a creator in the image of the creator, which means that we were born to create. And our creative capacities, in other words, our our God-given talents, may take many, many, many different forms. And school is so very narrowly defines what creative success is. Is it really creative to study for the SAT and do very well? Well, we talked about that earlier. I mean, that's simply um, regurgitating what has been fed to you and, and, and the people who do well, do it really well. Mm -hmm. And they probably do have God given algorithmic gifts to allow them to do well on standardized tests and do well in school. But you think about all the other creative gifts that, that humans have. And I I take it as faith. um, And I will defend this, even though I can't prove it scientifically that we all have creative capacities because I start with the, the viewpoint that we were created by something far greater than us and that we were given these capacities. And it's a tragedy to go through life not knowing they're there, not, not encouraged to find them. I love that. I love that. I think that's an a important message, again, that you're, you're, we're given these cultural messages all the time. And I think it's nice to just sort of pull back and sort of reevaluate, you know, are we allowing the space for that to develop. And if you don't allow the space, it's very difficult to, if you're waking up at three o'clock in the morning and grinding all the time, it's difficult to allow the space to create, even if it's, if it's in there. Yeah, very much so. This is, first of all, I wanted to ask you, is there anything you were hoping you would be able to talk about that I haven't asked you about? Well, let's talk about what we do. So if we have, oh, if we're good thinking, idea. we think that we're a late bloomer ourselves. And by the way, let me define late blooming along two vectors because I was I was surprised to find there's really no academic definition of late blooming. In fact, when it comes up in the academic literature, it's usually sort of a side note on some in some study that is, you know, it, it almost takes on this idea that it's a problem. It's a dysfunction rather than a natural state for for many of us, in fact, maybe even the majority of us. So one way to define late blooming is that we come into our own later than society's expectations. And that could be contextual. For instance, software programming is an early blooming field. Most great software programmers demonstrate that they're great software programmers in their 20s and many in their teens. And so to be a great software programmer who discovers that they are in their 30s would be a late bloomer, even though they're only in their 30s. A Tom Brady, the quarterback for the New England Patriots, won his first Super Bowl when he was 24. Surely you would say that person is an early bloomer, but not so fast. Um, He was not a highly recruited player out of high school, and, and he didn't even have the starting quarterback job at the University of Michigan until his senior year. And he was the 199th player taken in the year 2000 NFL draft. So in many ways, Tom Brady was a late bloomer in his field, even though he won a Super Bowl at age 24. Now, somebody writes who who is a great um, philosopher at age uh, in their 40s would be an early bloomer in the context of, of that field, because most great philosophers, people who write great books, on that topic don't really come into their own until their 50s or 60s. So late blooming is sort of contextual to the 
the field that you're talking about, but late bloomers are people who bloom later than expected for the field that they bloom into. But then I think of the metaphysical definition of late blooming, and that is it's late blooming happens when you arrive at that intersection where your God-given gifts and your passions, and passion is a word that's overused in our society today because people can say they feel passionate about the taco that they ate last night at this <laughs> new restaurant. My son always says that. He always, he but, always says, mom, it's my passion yeah. like about stupid stuff like tacos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say a much better word is purpose mm. where your God given gifts align with your purpose. That is passion so deep that you're willing to sacrifice for them. And when that happens, then you feel pulled rather than pushed, not pushed by others, but pulled toward this feeling of destiny. You feel pulled up. And you don't, when people feel pulled, they don't burn out. Mm. Nobody burns out on curiosity. Nobody burns out following the, the thing that most interests them. You feel pulled. And so that's another way to think about late blooming. But to your question about things that I want to talk about. I think the late bloomer in today's society where the late bloomer is undervalued is late bloomers are, are going to have to deal with some baggage, uh, chiefly around the idea of confidence. And so I dove into this idea of confidence and, and, and self-doubt in a chapter where I hailed the virtues of self-doubt and that self-doubt actually is, is useful. I mean, you wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be here if our forebears didn't have self-doubt. If we had people who did stupid things because they had no self-doubt, they wandered into a blizzard or they crossed a raging river because they were determined to, to capture a deer so that they would have food. Um, if they didn't have doubts about wandering into the blizzard or crossing the raging river, they would have been wiped out and, and we wouldn't be here. So self-doubt, you know, it's an evolutionary, evolutionarily useful thing to have. The problem is, in today's society, people take their self-doubt and they let it infect their self-worth. Mm. And so the self-doubt can only become useful when you draw a wall between it and your sense of self-worth. If you're created by God, in my view, if you're created by God, you have self-worth, end of story no debate. You have self-worth. How can you not have self-worth if you were created by a, a magnificent, you know, the same existence that created the universe? You have self-worth. So then once you do that, then you begin. So self-doubt is bearing information. And if you can look at self-doubt without getting panicked about it and say, okay, I really don't appreciate that you, self-doubt, showed up at this really inconvenient moment right before I was going to take a test or give a speech or go on a job interview. I really don't like this at all, that, that you showed up now. But what are you telling me? As long as you showed up, what are you telling me? Um, to go back to Carol Dweck, the Stanford psychologist, Carol Dweck recommends giving yourself doubt kind of a goofy name, you know, Uncle Filbert or hmm. something. Oh, here you are again. Ugh, eh, you know, you showed up at the worst possible time, Uncle Filbert. What are you right. trying to tell me? Um, why, what, why am I feeling self-doubt? And oftentimes, if you could do that without letting it infect your self-worth, then you can say, okay, maybe I didn't prepare enough for this test. Or maybe in this entrepreneurial journey, um, rather than being overwhelmed by the things that I don't do well, maybe I should find a partner in my business that does the things I don't do well. And so I can concentrate on doing the things that, that I do well, and together we're whole. Um, you know, kind of like the family brain, we're whole. Um, we have diversity within the family, we're whole. And the sum of the parts is greater than, than the individual parts themselves. So self-doubt brings useful information, and if we don't get all panicked about it because it's infecting our self-worth, we can move forward with self-doubt, in fact, move forward very effectively. Well, and one of the other things I remember you talking about was just this um, different ideas of what 
uh, blooming it looks like. And in terms, there's some study that you referenced about um, when people's brain reaches optimal performance and that if you're talking about taking a test, that might be earlier. But if you're talking about wisdom and like really putting together the big pieces of life's operations, that might happen. Like, I don't know that I would be very good at a standardized test right now, but I feel like I'm better at putting together the pieces of the things I see out in the world, if that makes sense. But there was some, some research that you referenced that is, that we're sort of getting proof of that, that there's just these different high points and where your brain functions best. Yeah, there were a couple, uh, there was one academic study and then one maverick neuroscientist that I want to bring up that really shaped how I thought about the subject of late blooming. And, and I included the findings of, of, of both the researchers and this neuroscientist in the book. The researchers, there was a great 2015 study done by Laura Germain of Harvard and Joshua Hartshorn of MIT, who were both postdoc students at Massachusetts General Hospital. And they asked a seemingly simple question, at what age do we cognitively peak? And the answer was far more complex and intriguing and ultimately hopeful than even they had imagined. Because the answer is, what cognitive ability are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And sure, uh, rapid um, synaptic processing speed, uh, the thing that might make you a really good test taker or a really good software programmer working under a time pressure or a high-frequency trader on Wall Street where it's just bang, 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 bang. Those cognitive skills peak in our, our 20s. When we get into our 30s, 40s, and 50s, a whole other set of cognitive attributes began to come into their own that weren't there before that support executive skills, leadership skills, empathetic skills, all of the things that, that, that we want that are extremely useful to us as we move forward in our career or move forward in our avocations and our, and our passions. Um, those are very useful to have. It's very useful to have the skill of leadership, the skill of inspiration, all, uh, rallying people to your cause. There are some pe young people that have those. But by and large, most of us get those skills as we get into our 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then as we get into our 60s and 70s, we actually peak in what we might call wisdom. And this leads me to this maverick neuroscientist, Elkanen Goldberg at, at New York University, who's now in his 70s. And Elkanen Goldberg had this sudden inspiration, this sudden thought in his late 60s that he was able to arrive by intuition answers that used to have, that he would have to run through some kind of constructed logic tree in his brain. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, as a professionally trained academic and as a rational person, you know, he always assumed you got to the right answer by by you know, first of all, asking the right questions, but then answering the questions is some sort of a logic tree. And outside of that logic tree, much like a software program, would pop out the right answer. And so he said, why in my late 60s am I suddenly able to arrive at the same answer in a flash intuitively? And so he came up with this maverick idea, and it is a maverick idea. It's not supported by everyone in the field, and it's yet to be proven for dead certainty. But he's, he's an interesting guy, is that the two sides of the, the brain, the more rational side, the side that stores memories, the side in which we tend to do logical operations, and then the more intuitive side of the brain, that there are these neural networks that are forming, connecting the two sides of the brain that keep getting richer and richer and richer throughout our lives, provided we're in otherwise good health and we stay curious and we read and we learn and we don't just sit in front of the TV and yell at the TV. I mean, we have the obligation to do that. But that these neural networks are able to interact in a way that, that we're not even quite aware of, and therefore our intuitions are informed by the logical side of our brain. So we, we have a flash of intuition, um, a possible idea, and immediately because of this enhanced neural network connecting the two sides of the brain, that idea goes to the side of stored memory and logic and, and, and basically says, uh, okay, 
it, does this creative idea that I had in a flash, does it mean anything or is it just entirely random? Well, let's just see how it stacks up against everything else that I've learned. And so, you know, all of that is happening extremely rapidly and we're not aware of it in his theory. And so we get this intuition that is much more shaped by our, our history, our memories, our, our experience of using logic to solve problems. And so uh, this is his belief, which I find um, in, it, it, it sounds right. Of course, other things that have sounded right, you know, later are disproven by science. But the fact that it's Elkanen Goldberg offering this theory, I think, lends it a lot of weight. At least we should give it attention. And it seems to be the case of a lot of people uh, that they can do, you know, really creative work in their 60s and 70s if they just step outside this societal prejudice that they can't. Right. Well, and I think that as, I don't know if you feel this way, but as you, as I'm getting older, I feel more comfortable taking those kind of risks because you're just like, so what if it doesn't work out? You know what I mean? Like that, that, that sometimes that intuition, it's easier for it to come out because you're not so tied to the cultural expectation of what you should be saying or what you shouldn't be saying. And that sometimes there's truth that comes out because of that. Yeah. I had a researcher interview the author, Daniel J. Brown. Now, Daniel J. Brown is not the Dan Brown, the thriller novelist, Mm -hmm. but Daniel J. Brown wrote a book that stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for two years, which is a book writer, I can tell you, is a really uh, enviable thing to do. Um, his book was called The Boys in the Boat. And The Boys in the Boat was about the 1936 University of Washington eight-man rowing team. And they were all poor Depression-era kids, and they had an unconventional boat builder from England. And they first had to beat the, the, the dominant West Coast power, which is the University of California at Berkeley. And then they uh, rowing was dominated by the Ivy League schools and the military academies, so they had to then go east and compete there, and they ended up winning the national championship. Well, because rowing is a team sport, the national championship also served as the Olympic trials. Because they won, they went to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin as a unit, and they ended up winning the gold medal. They beat host nation Germany Um, right under Hitler's nose, even though Germany was given this favorable lane and the U.S. is given this lane, you know, that was affected by a headwind and everything else, they won. And um, the U.S. team, as I said, consisted of these Depression-era kids, and the poorest of the poor was the best rower on the team. This is a kid that was so poor that he was kicked out of his own house at age 12 and told to go fend for himself. Now, the whole thing about rowing is you have to, uh, you're only as good as everybody is rowing at the same rhythm. In rowing, it's called the swing. The team has to get into the swing. And so it does no good for a single superstar to try to outshine everybody else on the team. In fact, it it wrecks the swing. Hmm. And so here you have the most powerful rower on the team was the kid who had trust issues because he had been kicked out of his own family. And the whole story was about integrating this boy into the team and building his confidence. And the coach did that, and the boat builder did that. They gave him more support than the kid's parents ever did. And I mention all this because Daniel J. Brown wrote and published this book in his 60s. And Daniel J. Brown had been a, he, he taught junior college English. He had been a technical writer at Microsoft. He'd written a couple of books that, were, that didn't sell. And this book was a complete surprise, shocked the book publishing industry. Nobody had ever heard of him, really. And, you know, that this 60-year, 62- or 3-year-old guy was able to write this book. Well, in the interview, Daniel J. Brown told the researcher that he, that he could have written this book in his 30s, perhaps. He would have gotten the top-line story right, the top-line story of this team of poor kids winning the Olympic gold medal, but he wouldn't have had the depth to see that it all hinged on this poor kid who'd been stripped of trust because he'd been kicked out, sent into the wild as a 12-year-old by his family. 
that that was the underlying story that gave richness to the book. And he said, I only could have seen that in my 50s when I was doing the research in my 60s when I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And so there you have a great example of somebody who's accumulated life's wisdom allowed him to write one of the best non-fiction books we've seen, you know, in the last 20 years. Yeah, I love that. Well, not only is that exciting for me as I'm getting older, because we all are, that's exciting that, to know that that's coming forward, but it's also good to hold on to when you have all these high expectations for young people. No wonder they're not all the way there. You know, I mean, it's like, we're just, I think sometimes we can take what we know now and try to put that back on kids and expect them to be able to do it too. Well, we wouldn't have been able to do it when we were 12, you know, put all the pieces together to make sure you're not making silly mistakes. Yeah. You know, Google has found that uh, Google measures everything. Now, Google, as I mentioned, was founded by two Stanford grad students who both scored perfect SATs uh, when they were in high school. In fact, Sergey Brin scored 760 on, uh, on a practice math SAT test when he was 12. So they had this great faith in, in um, the power of 800 math SAT people, and they decided... Brin and Page did that they would populate Google with with people of similar capacity, and that's so the the whole early Google team was built on on you know fancy degree eight hundred math SAT people. Well, as Google got bigger, the, you know it was all these bright people were writing these great algorithms, and they were making otherwise really stupid decisions. <laughs> Mm-hmm. marketing and HR and, yeah. and all of that. They brought in a brilliant HR person named Laszlo Bach. Laszlo Bach decided to test to see how well these fancy degree 800 math SAT people were doing once they got to Google. And he found that there was a very weak correlation between where you went to school, where you got your degree from, and how well you scored on your SAT, and then how well you were doing at Google three years later. In fact, at about five years into a Google career, there was no correlation at all mm-hmm. about where you'd gone to school and what you got on your SAT. No, it's, it's, inc- it's reminding me of this meeting I just had with my son's teacher and she was talking about how, like, do I feel like he's being challenged enough? And I was really trying to tell her, I really feel like the social work is the stuff that he needs to work on now and that we just have all these different types of work for our brains, whether it be social, getting along with other people, working together in a business environment. Um, is very different than sitting down and taking an SAT. Yeah, you know, I'm going to tell you about our neighbor. Our neighbor is the chief operating officer at a public biotech company, and his wife went to Harvard Business School. So they're certainly, you know, educated, motivated people who've done well in in Silicon Valley. And they had one child, um, a boy, and the boy was not really motivated about school. And I think in high school, he got a 2.9 or a 3.0. But he had a little entrepreneurial t-shirt business, and he was an Eagle Scout. And they, these parents made the very wise decision. They would rather have this well-rounded kid um, who was an Eagle Scout. I, you know, I know scouting has found itself in some of the cultural controversies, but it's a pretty good program and, and really teaches well-rounded skills, physical skills, mental skills, empathetic skills to the kids who go through the Eagle program. I only got seven merit badges myself so, and dropped out because I couldn't tie knots. <laughs> it's an intense program. It really it's is. An yeah, program. It and, is. and this young man, and, and they decided they weren't going to help him get into college. I mean, he had to, he had to be, show his own motivation, do his own application, and so forth. And he got into the University of Oregon and the University of Colorado, fine schools, but you wouldn't say that, you know, you wouldn't put him in the top 10. And he's a freshman at the University of Colorado and he's doing very well. Now, if I were a betting man, I would bet on, on this young man to have a better, you know, to have a fulfilling, uh, satisfying, happy adult life than some of these brittle and exhausted kids, to use Carol Dweck's words, mm-hmm. uh, of the kids who just shot shot all their energies um, in the direction of their parents' expectations. And, you know, at age 22, we're, we're, um, we're uh, almost cemented in by a fixed mindset. 
No, that makes so much sense. It's, it's fun talking to you because I can tell the things you're talking about are your purpose. You know, like that you've had all these experiences over the course of your life. And it seems, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but it seems like this is something that is really where all the things that have happened in your life are coming together to, to make you sort of the spokesperson for this. Well, um, Megan, I felt I had to write this book. I just had to write this book. I had to share my own goofy stories uh, and write this book because I felt that now is an optimal time where it might be of some use in the world. So it is my avocation. I still spend the majority of my Forbes days writing about the economy. I just got back from Singapore and Jakarta. Uh, we, in Singapore, we had our, our 19th annual Forbes Global CEO, CEO Conference. So I was the the MC and the principal moderator. So I spend a lot of my time there. But this this book on late blooming and why it's so necessary to open up a new avenue in American culture to think about late bloomers has become uh, has become a real driving passion. I love that. That's great. So the last question I usually ask people on the show is just about their own self-care. You know, when we talk about taking care of the family brain, it's all the different players. But what do you do to sort of help make sure that you're taking good care of yourself so that you can do all of this good work in the world? Well, I'll tell you something. I'll make a confession here that after, um, after finishing up Late Bloomers in the early part of this year, and then launching it, and then doing a number of speeches and podcasts and TV programs and all of that, and then immediately having to go to Asia, I was at the end of my rope physically. Mm -hmm. And I began to develop, um, I've had throughout my life, I've suffered migraines now and then, but my migraines took took an ugly turn uh, towards something called a vestibular migraine, that the chief symptom of my migraine was was vertigo, dizziness, mm-hmm. and I and that was pretty alarming. I had to um, be replaced doing an on-stage interview about 15 minutes before the interview because I didn't have the stability to even walk to the stage, and it was embarrassing. And so when I got home, I thought, you know, I am not taking care of myself. And I began to study up on vestibular migraines, and uh, I realized that for about the next six weeks, that I had an overwhelming desire to take a nap in the afternoon because I work at home often, that was possible. And I simply needed to catch up. I also got into a uh, a much deeper stretching uh, and flexibility program. I now have committed to at least twice a day, two of my three meals are a whole food plant-based diet. This morning I had an avocado sandwich and a smoothie made of an apple, blueberries, and almond milk. Um, so that would be an example of that. And it's taken a little while, taken about two months to get over that hump of exhaustion and the vestibular migraines. And now I feel good again. And it was a really good, good example that uh, now in my 60s, I can't afford to let myself get into that, go that far down as I did this summer. Yeah, no, I love you sharing that example because I think sometimes when people hear people talking, it, it it makes it sound like it's a straight line, you know, and that sometimes we go through these periods of time where things do get more intense and then you sort of have to rein it back in again and and realize, okay, that was too far. That was too much. Well, the other thing about the other thing about the vestibular migraine is that you also have when you once that's happened, then you have a panic about it that it's mm-hmm. gonna happen again. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to happen at the worst time when you're about to give a speech or something like that. And so a lot of it's going back to faith and saying, look, I'm just a vessel mm-hmm. you know, to say something that was an idea that was given to me by a greater power. And, and it's not about me anyway. Right. You know, what am I panicked about? I mean, I, you know, this, I'm just a vessel. Just, you know, go with that and trust that. So I had to work, you know, I had to go back to that essential idea also. That's great. I have loved talking to you. This has been so interesting. And I feel like we share a lot of similar perspective on uh, on just the brain and how, how life sort of changes over the course of time. Well, thank you. It's a real inspiration to be able to talk to you too, Megan. And, and you're doing great work with the Family Brain Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Family Brain. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to join the Family Brain community, we have a Facebook group 
just look up the family brain and I have an Instagram page at family brain podcast. And I also have a website, familybrainpodcast.com. And we would love to hear from you. If you would leave a review or a rating on iTunes, it helps people find our podcast. And I love it when people leave a little information about themselves, like why they like listening or what town or city or country you're listening from. That's always fun for me to see. So thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.